Good morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Begin reading with me, please, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your gladness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you certainly did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in, re in regard to need, but I've learned of whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For in Thessalonica, you sent once and again for my needs. Not that I seek the gift, but I, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full and have received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this morning we're going to bring to a conclusion the study we've been doing of the book of Philippians. I did not telegraph this when I began to tell you we're going to study the book of Philippians. Because I did not want you to yawn and say, well, this is going to be a long journey. But now that we've reached the end of it, I will tell you that was my intent to study through the book. Since you're a little slow on the uptake, I thought I would let you know that. But Paul begins this when saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Always in everything. I suggest to you that if any one of us were to say that, our response might be, who are you to tell me that? I'm not sure we'd get away with that. We sit here with a silver spoon in our mouth. But the Apostle Paul has good reason to be able to say this and have credibility when he says it. This is a man who writes this book while he sits in prison, chained to the Praetorian Guards, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And all the lack that goes with being in that kind of circumstance. And yet, throughout the book, he has said this very same thing over and over again. 
isn't rejoice kind of ha ha he he having a smile paint on our face five miles wide no it's a joy that grows out of a relationship that he has with christ because god scoured everything and said there's only one thing i can do send my son he could have sent an angel that would not have been adequate he could have waited till christ lived to be a ripe old age of 90 something years old that would have not been adequate he said the only thing i can do for man is send my son who is willing to take on flesh, live as a servant, humble himself, even to the death. Paul says, I know that Christ. And because I know him, I can rejoice in all things, all the time. That is a profound consideration for us. I wonder if, if we really recognize, maybe I should say it this way, I wonder if I really recognize how really profound what we have just said is. Not because I said it, but because that's what's been taking place in this book. That's been the relationship that Paul has anchored himself in. And I would suggest to you that when things are going our way, when there's no adversity in our face, that this might not be as so profound and impactful as when the only thing we have to grasp onto because there's nothing here on this earth that will offer fulfillment and nothing on this earth that will offer relief from what the affliction is. The only thing we have to hold on to is our relationship with Him. And I think because of that, Paul will say some things about peace in just a moment. The first thing I want you to see as we begin to work through this narrative is he makes this statement in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The first thing I suggest to you that Paul is talking about here is to have an element of self-control about you. Now, I just read from the New King James Version, let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Old King James and maybe other translations says, let your moderation be made to all men, to all men. And so we take that word moderation and say, well, we need to live with moderation. Well, we may need to live with moderation. But that's not what this passage is saying. That word moderation is really a very poor translation for what Paul is talking about here. The word gentle is a better word. Because the root of the word that gives us the, the term we want means to yield or to be mild. And so Paul says, let your yielding, let your mildness, let your gentleness be known to all men. When something slaps us in the face, when something is impactful for us, he says, let, let your forbearance, let your gentleness, let your humility all be known before men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is still ruling. The Lord is still in control. We can tend to be, if we're not careful, very cynical about life and about people. 
you do not catch a whiff of cynicism at all throughout this book from Paul. And so here he sits, not in a mansion, but in a prison, and he says, the praetorian guard are with me 24-7, and what they see is they see gentleness, they see forbearance, they see humility. To think that others would be able to see that in us is so significant. But to do that, there must be a will that is completely controlled, not by ours, but by His. And that's why Paul can say this, is because it is not His will that's ruling, it is the Lord's will that's ruling. And when we surrender ourselves completely to the will of God, then who He is will be inscribed and imprinted on our hearts and on our character, and our gentleness will be seen to all men. Does that suggest that there is never a time to be firm? No. Because this same apostle, when you turn to the latter part of 2 Corinthians, he takes the gloves off. And to the Judaizers, he spares no, he spares nothing for them. But Paul says, as I sit and my relationship with you is in the main, generally speaking, you can deal better with people from a gentle, humble point of view and let them see that in you because the Lord is at hand they're always trying to poke a finger in somebody's eye. And I think that's important for us to get. Sometimes we can stand up for what is right by simply being humble and being gentle about it. It doesn't always have to be in somebody's face. The second thing I think that is significant here in this is he begins then and says, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Is he talking about some kind of passivity that we just lay down in a ditch and, and say, Lord, I tried? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person who, has, as we've seen throughout the book, who has a commitment to the Lord, who has tried all he can possibly do to please the Lord in all things, and then say, Lord, I yield myself to you. I give it all to you. He says, I have prayed in the beginning. I have prayed in the middle. And I have prayed at the end. Don't wait till the emergency happens to become prayerful. We can't be a prayerless people. And so he says, let your, don't be anxious. Let everything you know be given to the Lord in prayer. Thinking back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 33, in that section where the Lord talks about be not anxious, don't be worried, all that kind of thing, for what you shall eat, what you should drink, what you should wear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he comes down to verse 33 and says, uh, all these things shall be added to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness because sufficient is the day, the evil thereof. Every day has its own set of troubles, but yield yourself to the Lord. And so we're going along, things are just fine, peaceful in our lives. And then we... Look, and we see somebody has something we don't have, and all of a sudden, we are miserable. Because we want what they have, and we don't have it. Why is that? Why is that? 
Could it possibly be because we have put so much emphasis on the material and not given the emphasis to the spiritual? Solomon will say in the book of Ecclesiastes, if there's a desire for silver, that desire shall never be satisfied because you'll never have enough. How much does it take for us to be satisfied with what we have when we see somebody else having something we don't have? We might as well try to fill Niagara in a teacup as to try to satisfy our yearnings on material things. It's kind of like what somebody says about drinking ocean water. It may satisfy the thirst for a moment, but it'll only make you even more thirsty. And if all we do is drink at the well of the material, then we're never going to be satisfied because we weren't made to run on the material. We were made to run on God. And if we're made to run on God, that means there's something that is more than just simply a slice of our pie that Christ fits. If what we have is the pie of our life and there's one, one particular slice, and it's not even too big a slice, but we're going to have that slice of our pie, that's going to be Christ, but we haven't yet set our affection on things above, then it's not going to be any wonder that we're always struggling with trying to be anxious in nothing because we have set ourselves up for that. Yeah, but shouldn't, shouldn't we be concerned about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and what we should wear? I mean, look at it. I'm, has anybody noticed that uh, the price of things has gone up? Has anybody noticed that as the economists have said, we're kind of in a period of inflation. Have you read the doom and gloom that's coming that says uh, everything's going to collapse? Everything's going to go down the tubes. It's going to be a world depression. It's going to be not just a world recession. It's going to be a world, world depression. And we're worried about that. Wait a minute. Time out. If someone gives you a million dollars, are you going to worry about him giving you a quarter? And the point is this, if God saw our deepest, greatest need and clothed himself in the flesh and provided a means of salvation for us that he did not spare himself and God did not spare his son, shall he not take care of us in the lesser things? Have we not got ourselves out of sorts? With what we're focusing on, when all we think of is what is at the point of our nose. You know, we, we slam Esau a lot. I mean, we, we, we will, we'll go through Jacob and Esau and we'll extol Jacob, that cheater that he was. And we will, we will slam Esau because what he did was he, he traded his birthright for a bowl of beans. Nobody's going to die within 24 hours. We know that. Esau knew that. But he saw something he wanted that Jacob had that he didn't have and he wanted it more. But I wonder sometimes if we, if I am not more consumed with what's at the point of my nose than the greater gifts that God has given to us. Listen, if he's given us the greatest gift, then whatever is after that pales in comparison. It's the lesser. If it's guilt, then confess our sins to God and be forgiven. If it's covetousness, we set our values. If it's doubt and anxiety, then renew our faith and commitment and trust with God. There must be this delight in Him that consumes us with the spiritual because He's made us for something greater. You don't take a mink and mop the floor with it. 
And we can't take the gifts that God has given to us and spurn them for something that's lesser called the material. But he says, pray to God. Well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we pray to God? Yes, we pray to God. Our children come to us. And maybe they've even grown and they come to us. And they're facing some sort of significant challenge in their life. Maybe the challenge is with their kids, our grandkids. And so do we tell them after they've spoken, do we just kind of brush them off and say, oh, that's nothing. No. And God's not going to just simply brush us off and say, oh, that's nothing. Go on your way. It'll be okay. He's saying we let our prayers and supplications be made known to God. Why? Because he can do something about it. And our children come to us because we know something they don't know. Because we have been where they are and we are now further down the road and we have seen things and experienced things and we have a value that is set that maybe they haven't got yet set because they haven't experienced yet or maybe you're not that place at maturity yet, but we have that in place and so we listen because they come to us knowing we can do something about it or at least we can offer something for them to consider about it. God doesn't just simply brush us away. In Matthew chapter 6, Again, in verses 9 and 10, he said, be, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he talks then about laying all of our prayers before God. And so we said, we've done that. I've tried. But what if it hasn't been answered? Did Paul pray? Was it answered like Paul wanted it answered? Did the saints in Jerusalem pray for the release of James? Was it answered like they wanted it to be answered? I use this illustration not because he is a godly fellow. Garth Brooks is not the most godly man. But he did write a song one time that says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. And maybe the prayer goes unanswered because God knows best and what we're asking for does not necessarily fit what his will is for us in our lives. And so he refrains from answering that in the manner we have asked it. The most of our conundrum comes, well, Lord, I prayed to you and you didn't say yes. That's what we want. God's not a vending machine. We stick our dollar fifty in the vending machine and then get our prayers answered. Our part is we pray. That's the end of our part. We don't whittle on God's end of the stick. We pray and let our supplications be made known to God, and we pour out our thanksgiving to Him, putting all of our cares and burdens on Him because He cares for us. And because He cares for us, that is enough. And even if death stares us in the face, that is sufficient for us. But for most of us, as far as our health is concerned, that's not our case. We have a few that do. And I don't say that lightly. This was Paul's anchor. And it must be ours. And so he says, be anxious for nothing. The next thing I want you to see in this text is he says, and the peace of God 
surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Put your finger there or marker there and turn back to Ephesians chapter 3, maybe just a couple of pages in your Bible. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. And in verse 14, Paul begins his second of his two prayers in the first half of Ephesians. But I want to begin interrupting the sentence in verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints was the width, length, depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Maybe that's what Paul is talking about here in, Romans, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding that what? We have tried to, as comprehensible as we could, comprehend the immeasurable love of God. You can't put the love of God on a spreadsheet, folks. You can't chart it. You're not going to be able to track it like you can track your finances. You're not going to be able to measure it that way. And that's why Paul can say, Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, because his peace, Surpasses all understanding. What is that peace? That peace that knows He has loved us eminently. Having given Himself for us, demonstrated that the love is proven by action and measured by sacrifice. We have no doubt about it because He has given Himself. John will talk about this kind of perfect love. And he says, how can you say you love your brother? If you see he has need and you shut up your bowels of compassion for him. It's good to say you love, but better is indeed and in truth. Well, God didn't just say I love you. God indeed and in truth showed us he loved us. And Paul said there's a peace that comes. That surpasses all understanding when you can in some way comprehend the incompar incomparable. And that's a contradiction of terms. You can come to some kind of realization, to come to some agreement in your life of how great and how deep the Father's love really is for us. And so Paul will talk about this peace that passes understanding. And in line with that, then, he will say this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. These things which you have heard, which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace be with you all. And I think what he's saying there is we have to give greater consideration to the spiritual aspirations. And he said that means we're going to have to think on some things. We're going to have to change the way we think. And when we change the way we think, and we think on these things that make us like Him, that all those things that cause us the anxiety that pertain to life under the sun, they may not go away 100%, but they, they will sure dissipate in their attention. He said we need to give greater concern to an aspiration for the spiritual things. Think on these things. But we have to be careful what we are filling our minds with. We can't fill our minds with filth six days a week. 
and come on the first day of the week, and that's the only time we reboot to have a spiritual aspiration. We can't fill our minds with garbage and filth throughout the week, having given no thought to spiritual things. They simply come and have a garbage dump on the first day of the week to pick it right back up on Monday and go right back to wallowing in the pen with a pig in the filth of his mire where we have been all week long and expect our thinking to change. Maybe our greater challenge is not determining between what is right and wrong. I would aver that even from the youngest to the oldest here, we pretty well know what is right or wrong, don't we? I mean, that's not a real, real challenge for us. We know what is right or wrong. Maybe it's between what is necessary versus what is indifferent. And maybe it's even between what is necessary versus what is good. Those may be our greater challenges. I have before stated in this discussion of the book of Philippians, I think one of our greatest concerns today, while immorality is always something we have to guard ourselves with, I'm not saying we ever get to where we can turn our back on it. And also we can never just unloose our tongue. We never can say, okay, I got this, I got this little member managed. Because as soon as we do, it's going to jump out and it's going to bite us and bite somebody else. We, we understand those things. Maybe, maybe there's a struggle somewhere with them. But in the main, that's not it. In the main, our greater struggle will be between the necessity, what is necessary, and the indifferent. You see, as we live in this land of milk and honey, as we live in the land of abundance that is given to us, it's easy to violate the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the Lord told the children of Israel, you're going to come to this land and you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to reap from vineyards you didn't plant. But be careful lest you lift up your heart and say, look at what I have done. It's easy for us when we have come from nothing to something and we have said we have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Look at what I have accomplished. And then we take our greater confidence in what we have accomplished. He says, we need to be careful lest we lift ourselves up like that. Because when we do, that's when indifference comes in. I'm reminded in Romans chapter 1 when he says, when they knew God, they did not offer Him thanks, nor did they glorify Him. When they knew God, not when they were dumb as a stump. When they knew God, they did not glorify Him, nor give Him thanks. I wonder how big a challenge that is for us. We say we know Him. How often in our lives do we give thought to glorifying Him and give Him thanks? And when I say we, I use the plural pronoun as much as I can because I'm included in this. Listen, you, 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 that's as simple as you, not me. It is us. We are in this. We face this same challenge. When we know Him, are we going to glorify Him and give Him thanks? Or are we going to simply look back, sit back and say, look at what we have accomplished in our lives. We have accomplished nothing. If we have accomplished anything, it is because of the gifts He has given us. And how He has blessed us with those gifts. And when we have used them to His glory, it is only one thing we can do. Say, thank you. Thank you. And so, what he says here is this is the gospel lived out. You have heard this 
and you have seen this, you have witnessed this in my life, now follow this example. Mark these kind of people. Find that kind of person that you have as an example in your life. Here is the gospel lived out. And these things he mentions in verse 8 will make us like him. These are attributes of God. It's interesting how many times over and over again in Paul's writings, he comes into these things and put these attributes of God in his writing because he's saying, I want you to be made like him. That's what Paul said, I'm reaching and stretching forth that I have not attained. But he says, I tell you what, this is urgent to me. This is a man who realizes the urgency of his commitment. But finally, as we bring this to a close for the last few minutes, I just simply ask, how can we do this? While we talk about prayer, that's significant, but I I suggest to us that the thing that made that significant was a single-minded devotion on his part. Paul did not have to wake up every day and say, Am I going to please God today? Paul had already determined that. And folks, we have determined that in our repentance. In our repentance and coming to the Lord, we have said no to Satan and yes to God. And what we've said is, I'm saying yes to God every opportunity I get. And there's not a question in my mind about whether I'm going to say yes to God or not. And there's something comforting about that. There's something peaceful about that. I don't have to wait to determine what every circumstance put before me is going to do, how I'm going to respond to that. I know how I'm going to respond. Have I respond, I'm going to please God. That was his single-minded devotion. And I suggest to us, that's what we need. When we said we're going to come to Christ, every decision potentially was made at that point. We said we were going to say yes to God. But Paul said, listen, it wasn't always that way. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity, not I speak in regard to want, but I have learned. I had to learn this. I had to learn, Paul said, this hasn't always been this way. I had to learn this. And what Paul has said, it doesn't matter whether, whether, what age you are in life, you have to learn to have this kind of single-minded commitment and devotion to God. When you stand at the altar and you say, I do, you don't have to wonder whether an opportunity is presented to you or not, whether you're going to do or not. Because what you said was, I do, to her or to him. And there's no decision about anybody else. And we brought that dead man to be buried and raise a new man. What that new man says is, I do. And that decision is made. I know. I know we thrill at this. I know we want to be this kind of committed disciple. I know we want to do something for the glory of God. I know we want to be like this. And I hope the study of this grand man with these grand people in Philippi has strengthened our determination. And I can't help but think about these people in Philippi as they send back Epaphroditus, as Paul sends Epaphroditus back to him. Back to them, Epaphroditus says, I'm sure glad I could be there on your behalf. I sure sure miss seeing the old man. 
we had great moments and I was sure lifted up by him. I was better because I was in his presence. And the Philippians would say, yes, we understand Epaphroditus because we have been strengthened by him. In his bonds, he's not despondent. In his bonds, we have been strengthened by him. And we've been brought to a greater greater understanding of what it means to be of one mind and to stand fast in the Lord. Not because Paul's with us, he's absent, but because we share that kind of single-minded commitment. And we understand that in our race, there's something we're striving for. And we're pressing toward that mark. And the transformation is in process. And we're going to do all we can because he's doing all he can to work in us to his glory and his good. It is not simply the do God wants. He wants the heart of man. And Paul has given his heart to him with everything. So that he has this to say. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Where's the comfort in that? It's not found in life under the sun. It's found in life with the sun. And when we have life with the sun, whatever, whatever, whatever we face, God will be sufficient. I hope this has strengthened you. You've listened so well to this. Thank you so much. We'll have a prayer. A song that we dismissed our classes. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.